When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on violence prevention in the workplace. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes. This presentation is based in part on two different best practices from the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. One is managing and mitigating conflict in healthcare teams, and the other is preventing violence, harassment, and bullying against health workers. Both of those are in the additional resources section of your class, so you can look at those if you want to get some more information. And then obviously there's some other resources throughout, but the brunt of the presentation comes from information from those two best practices. In this class, we're going to define types of violence in the workplace and explore best practices for prevention and intervention. Go figure. Now, there are five different types of violence. Type one is criminal intent. The perpetrator has no relationship to the workplace at all. We're not going to talk about that one today. That's going to be more security sort of things that you need to worry about. We're going to focus on type two, three, and five. A client or a customer um, who becomes violent toward someone who works in your workplace, whether it's you or a administrative person. Type three is employee on employee violence or conflict. And type five is a worker becoming conflictual or becoming violent, hopefully not, toward a client. Type 4, we're also not going to talk about today, but it's something to be aware of, is violence in which the perpetrator has a personal relationship with an employee, such as in a domestically violent situation. So we're going to talk about client on customer, customer on client, and or client on employee, employee on client, and employee on employee violence today. There we go. I've got it all straight. Violence in the workplace involves a misuse of power and control, and it may take the form of physical, psychological, or sexual abuse and or harassment, mobbing, bullying, or aggression. It's broad, and we have microaggressions. We have a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about in terms of violence. So we're using a pretty large term. We're not just limiting it to somebody hitting or physically attacking someone other. It may involve action or withholding action. So violence can be discriminating against someone. It may be done intentionally or unintentionally. 
and often involves interactions between people in different roles and power relationships, supervisor to supervisee, but not all the time. I've been a supervisor long enough to know that there's a lot of conflict that happens between peers. Conflict is inevitable in the work setting due to inherent differences in goals, needs, desires, responsibilities, perceptions, and ideas, but violence is not inevitable. We are going to conflict with each other. We're going to have differing opinions, and that's actually usually great. Um, I used to love hearing other opinions about, you know, potential diagnoses or ways to treat clients that were on our caseload. And we had people that were on our team. I don't think there were duplications of any degree. So we had social workers, um, marriage and family therapists, counselors, addictions counselors, rehabilitation counselors, you know, the list goes on. And each person generally had a different perspective about what might be the best approach. You're not necessarily going to just have conflicts over how to treat clients, though, or treatment plans for clients. You may have conflicts with staff members over job duties or conflicts with staff members or supervisors over who gets a promotion or who's in charge. There are a lot of different things that can lead to conflict in the workplace, and conflict that goes unresolved can lead to violence. Like I said, conflict is inevitable, and it can be caused because of perceived and actual differences between people's professional identity or education. You know, I've worked on teams before where we've had people who've had no degree, and we've had people who've had MDs, and all of us, thankfully, were able to work well together and respect one another's opinion, but that doesn't necessarily always happen. Sometimes people with degrees tend to think that they have more to contribute than people without degrees. And I found in my 20-some-odd years of experience that that is faulty reasoning. Um, we all have something to contribute. Cultural identity can contribute to conflicts, as well as gender and gender identity, marital status, disability, work values, goals, interests, and treatment approach. People are individuals, and how we approach life is going to vary between from person to person. We also have to recognize that conflict may arise because a particular client or employee has biases or, well, we'll stick with biases, towards people who are of a different culture or a different gender or have a different gender identity than they do. So we do need to be very conscientious about um, embracing multicultural education when we're working with our staff as well as our clients. And we want to make sure that our environment is culturally responsive. Other factors contributing to conflict, shift work. When you've been working a 12-hour shift and it's towards the end of your shift, you're probably, a lot of people, are probably ready to go home. And so they may get cranky if they have to stay late. That's not an excuse for violence, but it can mean that people who are towards the end of their shift, who are exhausted, may have less of a filter and less effectively use their communication skills. Additionally, and this drives me crazy in certain situations, in certain um, organizations, where people are involuntarily rotated on their shift, 
you know, every month or every three months. And that adds a lot of stress in the person's personal life as well as to their physical body because our body doesn't like to change shifts that often, which can contribute to increased irritability, sleep deprivation, and all the problems that go along with that, which means when they have issues, when conflicts do arise, they may be, tend to be more impulsive or think through it a little less clearly. Team composition and size can contribute to conflict. If you've got a huge team, then there's a lot of cooks that are trying to get in the kitchen, and that can contribute to conflict. Um, if you've got multiple different types of people, like I said, you've got, you know, techs all the way to MDs on a team, there may be some conflict about how to handle it. The MD may want to see it handled a certain way, and the administrator may want to see it handled a certain way, and the line staff is going, well, that sounds great, but there ain't no way that actually can happen. <laughs> you know, we just don't have the ability to operationalize that, which takes us to workload and staffing. When workload is excessive, and a lot of times it is, especially in community mental health, or and or there is a lot of staffing turnover, that can contribute to conflict between people because they are feeling overworked, they're feeling stressed. You know, think about DBT when we talk about vulnerabilities, and think about your own self. When you start to get exhausted, stressed, worn down, you feel unappreciated, you feel overwhelmed. How do you deal with conflict in those situations versus when you feel appreciated and rested and involved? You know, it's kind of a no-brainer there. Role ambiguity can also contribute to conflict. I've worked in pretty much everywhere I've worked, unfortunately. Um, I'm one of those people who loves manuals. I like being able to see these are the 17 things you're responsible for. I'm like, okay, I can do that. And every place that I've worked, I've gone into a job and I've gone, okay, where's the description of what my day is supposed to look like, what I'm responsible for? And this, my supervisors have looked at me and gone, eh, you know, you'll figure it out. Excuse me? <laughs> I'll figure it out. Um, so role ambiguity can add to people's distress because they're not sure what exactly they're supposed to be doing. But it can also add to conflict because team members may assume that, okay, well, Jane is supposed to do X, Y, and Z. And Jane says, no, I'm only responsible for X. You're responsible for Y and Z. And then there becomes conflict. And think about in a residential setting, for example, we have groups that have to be done. We have individuals that have to be done. There's crisis management that has to be done, uh, milieu monitoring that has to be done, documentation. There's lots of stuff. And people may start feeling like, well, it's your job to do this, that, or the other. And other some people may feel overburdened because they feel like they're, they're taking on other people's jobs. Manager's span of control also contributes to conflict. When you have a reasonable number of people that you're supervising, it's easier to be aware of what's going on with your team and how the team is functioning and work through and um, the process of what they call transfer transformational leadership. And we're going to talk about that more in a little while. However, in a lot of situations, managers are managing way more than they can really possibly 
keep their finger on the pulse on of. I remember at one point I was supervising upwards of 16 supervisors and then I had a supervisor quit. So I was supervising an entire unit that had 27 staff plus the supervisors that I was supervising. And I felt like I was going six ways till Sunday and I didn't have a good feel for what was going on unless my staff was coming and saying, okay, we've got this problem or we've got that problem. So it's important that managers are aware of how their subordinates or their supervisees are doing, how they're feeling, their job satisfaction, and all that stuff we're going to talk about. Power differences in can contribute to conflict. If you've got somebody who is the lead therapist versus the other people who are not the lead therapist, and a conflict arises on the unit at that particular time, the lead therapist may make a call, other people may disagree, and there could be a power struggle that ensues. Same thing between staff and clients. I remember when I used to supervise residential, one of the things that I always told my staff was, we have rules, and if you don't know the reason for those rules, you need to ask me. Because when clients ask you for the reason for those rules, we need to be able to tell them. When we make a decision about something, we need to be able to clearly articulate our reason so it doesn't feel like we're being bullies. We can make it clear how whatever our decision is, is going toward improving quality of care for them. Clients can get very irritable when they feel like they have no control over their treatment, whether it's outpatient or residential. It's important to make sure that staff balances that power as, as well as possible. There's always going to be a power differential, but it's important that we involve the customers or clients or patients, whatever you call them in your setting, in what's going on so they feel like they have a voice. If staff don't feel like they have enough involvement in decision-making and provision of care, that's going to potentially lead to problems. If sweeping changes come down in the agency and all of a sudden you're told these things are going to change and you didn't have a say in it and you look at it and you see all these reasons why this new policy is going to potentially be detrimental to your clients and or your own mental health, it can be really stressful if you don't feel like you've got a voice. Resource allocation contributes to conflict. In big agencies, when certain departments get all the resources and others don't, that can contribute to conflict. When there aren't enough resources to get things done, there's like enough hours in the day, that can be a problem. Uh, back residential is uh, another good example. We used to have to do orientation for clients before they would come in. Well, we admitted clients every single day, and they had to go through that orientation. When I first took over, we had a therapist that was doing the orientation, and then therapists were getting behind in their work, so that there was not good resource allocation because I, I needed my therapist to be able to get their work done and their documentation. We ended up moving that duty to one of our administrative personnel who, yes, I mean, she already had a lot on her plate, but she was able to rearrange things to spare an hour a day to do the orientation. 
resource allegation is important because it goes back to that burnout when people feel overworked, overstressed, and just overwhelmed all the time. They're going to tend to have more difficulty managing conflict. Diversity in the workplace, we already talked about that a little bit. Physical space can be another issue for conflict, whether it's two employees. I remember one place I worked, we always had to share offices. There were at least two, if not three therapists in every office, which got a little dicey sometimes when you had to do an individual and kick the other two people out because there was no place where you could guarantee that you wouldn't get interrupted which can cause problems but also for our clients physical space including the waiting room we don't want a lot of crowding in the waiting room in treatment rooms we want to make sure that they have enough elbow room they're not getting too hot because all of those things can contribute to irritability and if it is a residential facility how much space they actually have we saw an increase in conflict in our residential unit when senior management decided to bring in bunk beds so instead of having four to a room we suddenly had eight to a room and there was just barely enough room to get through and you know get in and out of the room questionable whether it was even compliant with fire codes but the fire marshal didn't have an issue with it so it must have been fine but it, it was pretty minimal in terms of what space they had that they could call their own for the 60 or 90 days that they were with us and diagnoses that people have or stressors that they have in their life this can be again staff or clients people who are working at your agency are not necessarily always the perfect picture of ideal mental health you know you may not be sometimes we all have days that we are struggling with stressors and a lot of people who are working at your agency probably also have diagnoses doesn't mean anything except for the fact that they've got a diagnosis as long as it's being managed well but for example if you're working with a, a staff person who is in recovery from substance abuse and they relapse you know that's going to be a problem that has to be addressed and it could contribute to conflict if you have a staff member who has bipolar disorder and starts having a relapse into a manic episode and you notice that um, you know we know that people when they're in a manic episode may tend to be a little bit more impulsive which could contribute to um, more conflict so there's there are the um, a lot of different things that can contribute to conflict and we really want to look at the situation and the person and figure out what the commonalities are for the majority of our conflicts that happen the underpinnings of violence prevention like I said earlier the first thing is to try to prevent burnout in the workplace and identify conflict as early as possible that way it doesn't escalate into violence leadership is required across all organizational levels to create environments that practice management and mitigation of conflict you're going to have clients that come in and they're sitting in the waiting room I wish it weren't so but I know it happens it happens to me when I go to the doctor's office you sit in the waiting room for 20 30 40 minutes past your appointment time and you start getting a little irritable well that's conflict and that conflict can quickly escalate if the person 
came in and they've already got, you know, some sort of mental health diagnosis going on and they need help and they're already in crisis and then they feel ignored, then, yeah, you can see where they could escalate because they're going, hello, you're not hearing me. I really need help. All conflict has a meaning and or a contributing underlying cause. So when you do your root cause analysis, whether it's staff on staff conflict or client on staff or staff on client, you want to look and understand what precipitated that particular conflict and how could it have been prevented and what did it mean? What was the the aggressor, if you will, trying to communicate that they were not able to effectively communicate? Remember that conflict can be a disagreement. It can be a difference of opinion. It doesn't have to turn into anger or violence. However, when conflict goes unaddressed, it can turn into anger. And anger is often a response to the threat of a loss of control. Think about your clients who sometimes will file grievances or, you know, get into conflicts with staff or other clients, a lot of times they felt like something was out of their control. It could be they didn't want to be there and they felt, you know, if they were involuntary, it could be something else was going on in their life that felt out of control and they were trying to get some semblance of control. But generally, or sometimes, there's a threat of loss of control. Or the threat of rejection, if somebody feels rejected or ignored or looked down upon. Isolation. And isolation can, if somebody feels like they're not being, other people are getting more attention than they are, or they're getting overlooked. If they fear a sense of failure, either in their own treatment or in terms of an employee, if they feel like something's going on that's making them look bad, it might cause conflict. And the unknown. And we see a lot of these with clients, especially if you're in a situation where you do use uh, seclusion or restraint. But even if they are just coming into a new situation, if they're new to your program, that's the unknown. They're already going to have a little bit of anxiety. And that can escalate into conflict or aggressive behaviors. Understanding, mitigating, and managing conflict may result in positive outcomes such as new ideas and initiatives. It's like, okay, let's sit down and let's talk about this. Let me understand your point of view. Let me help you understand my point of view. And let's see if we can figure out how to meet in the middle and come to some sort of compromise. Conflict is addressed in different ways depending on who the conflict is with. You are not probably going to resolve a conflict with your CEO the same way you resolve the co- a conflict with a client that you have. It's going to be addressed differently. The meat and potatoes are generally the same. You're going to come to an understanding and try to come to a uh, reasonable compromise. But the actual procedure, whether you sit down in a meeting or you know, how it's handled, may be a little bit different. So processes to minimize conflict, regular assessments, and it's important as clinicians that we regularly assess ourselves for how we're doing, as well as our clients. How are they doing? So we're more aware of who might be at risk for conflict, agitation, or escalation. As a supervisor, um, it's important, and even as a 
even as an employee, it's important to be aware of your colleagues and how they're doing. And if they're starting to get stressed out, maybe they've got something going on at home and it has nothing to do to work with work. Well, that's fine. But if they are agitated at work, it's important to know that and follow the appropriate steps as indicated by your agency. As a supervisor, it's super important, ideally, to kind of have an idea about how things are going. You're not going to check in with your, every single person on your staff every single day necessarily, but you have an idea about how things are going. And if you see Jane come in late and disheveled and she is always like, looks like she walked out of the, the pages of Vogue and she's always 10 minutes early, that's going to be a clue to you that something may be going on that you might want to talk with her about, you know, just to see, you know, is everything going okay? A little bit of empathy and caring goes a long way, whether it's between colleagues or a supervisor to a supervisee. You need to regularly assess your team. If you're a supervisor, your team functioning to make adjustments as needed and quell any conflicts that might be existing. Sometimes you've got people who have conflicts and they just kind of bite their tongue and in the meeting and then they go into their offices and they badmouth each other behind each other's backs and it can get it can get ugly it's important to be aware of all of those dynamics that are going on because when we get to it it's really important to develop a, a culture of respect and openness and we need to do regular assessments of our organization especially well not especially for clients for staff and clients to identify sources of conflict and sources of stress that could lead to aggressive behaviors. Regular assessments, you know, the term regular is kind of loosey-goosey. It depends on your setting. I say at least quarterly for, for clients and employees, ideally daily for ourselves to know how we're feeling, and uh, maybe annually for the organization. There's no hard set numbers for those. We need to improve emotional intelligence. As therapists, we tend to be a little bit better with emotional intelligence than some people. However, uh, I, I find it interesting that I have worked with people who are amazing, fantastic. I just can't find the words to describe how wonderful they are as clinicians and empathetic and all that stuff. But then when they start working with colleagues, it's a whole different ballgame. It's like they have no clue at how their colleagues are feeling. So we do want to work on improving emotional intelligence and communication, developing conflict management skills, and educating individuals, teams, and the organization regarding conflict management in specific settings and target groups. Uh, you're going to have different stressors and different threats, if you will, for violence in different settings. Outpatient is a whole different ballgame because they bring in their own stuff every day. In residential, we know what stuff they have. We've already gone through their stuff, so we know, we know they don't have any weapons or drugs or anything like that. Outpatient is different. Detoxification, it's a whole different ballgame because you've got somebody who is in the throes of, of uh, withdrawals, and that can prompt a lot of erratic behavior. Crisis stabilization units, Alzheimer's units, people who have some sort of psycho psychotic disorder going on. If you are 
doing home visits and you encounter conflict. That's a whole different ballgame. And then you have the significant others of your clients who may be taking part in family therapy. They may be showing up to pick up their significant other and be irritated at how that person's being treated or whatever. But we need to be aware of all those different potential areas. We also need to remember the different types of conflict, you know, interpersonal staff conflicts and staff conflicts with the clients are not uncommon when clients get irritable in residential you know you have a lot more conflict in residential because you're there 24 7 but when they would lose privileges for some reason the clients would get quite irritable with staff does that mean they got violent generally no there were generally it was client on client where we would see more violence as opposed to client on staff implementing refresher courses and or updates is important we want to remind people to be cognizant not only of treating their clients because that's what they do they come in they call their client they go back to their office they have their appointment they do their notes yada yada and repeat well that's all well and good but they also need to be aware of their impact on the rest of the team and the team's impact and the environment's impact on them. It's important to require managers to demonstrate accountability for effective conflict management. If you've got a team that's falling to pieces, you know, that's partly on the manager because the manager needs to step in and take a leadership role and say, okay, there's a problem here. Let's see how we can work this out because conflict in the team is going to contribute to poor client outcomes, and that's not what we're here to do. Clear communication and transformational leadership also need to be a part of a manager's repertoire. In transformational leadership, and there's entire courses and schools on transformational leadership, but the gist of it is that the leader works with teams to identify needed change and create a vision to guide the change. Okay. You know, if this team were working efficiently or you're working with a client and you're saying, if this treatment were working efficiently, what would it look like? And what needs to change in order to start moving forward again? The leader highlights the important priorities and works with the team members, whether it's fellow employees or a client, to create a win-win situation. All right, so let's figure out what we need to do and how we can compromise to make this work. You want to connect the followers, the client or the employee, connect the followers' sense of identity to the project or to the change and to the collective identity of the organization. Now, that's more for employees. You want them to see how this change that they're trying to make is going to help them be a better therapist and how by them being a better therapist, it's going to enhance the effectiveness of the organization as a whole. When you're talking about clients, you want to connect their identity, their idea of being a successful, happy, healthy human being to the change that you're trying to make and help them see how that change is integral to the therapy process. Be a role model and inspire people to raise their interest in the, pro in the project. 
whether you're working in, with employees or clients, it's important to demonstrate enthusiasm, this you can do it attitude. And wow, how awesome will it be when we reach our goal? Keep that enthusiasm going. Make sure that you validate and highlight small steps forward as well as large steps. Challenge followers, you know, team members or clients to take ownership of their work. I'm not fixing the client. The client is choosing different behaviors. They are making progress, maybe with some guidance from me. However, they are the ones that are choosing the behaviors and choosing the next best step. Same thing with employees. Encourage them to take ownership of what they are doing in order to facilitate this change because change is hard. And transformational leaders understand the strengths and weaknesses of their followers so you can better match followers with tasks that enhance their performance. Some of my supervisees, when I worked with them, were great at paperwork. Some were great with individuals. Some were great with group therapy. And it was important when I was divvying up duties, so to speak, to identify not only what people were great at, but what they enjoyed, because you can be great at something and really hate it. And it was important to try to mix and match duties and not be hamstrung that this is what the job description says, which we were always lucky. We had, um, we called it POTUS, performing other duties as assigned. And so it could give us a little bit of wiggle room in terms of what I call job sharing. And we made sure that people were in the areas that fit them best. Transformational leaders create an ethical climate with shared values and high ethical standards. We, as a team, may not have all of the same values. That's okay. You know, we're individuals. That's, that's okay. We need to, as a team, come up with a set of shared values for what we want our team to accomplish and what treatment needs to look like for the clients. When we work with clients, we need to create that climate by sharing values. I need to understand what's important to my clients and help in the process maintain high ethical standards to facilitate that change. We want to encourage followers to look beyond themselves to the common good. Yes, this may not be, when we're talking about teams, this may not be your ideal situation. You know, maybe you don't want to switch over to evenings. However, you know, if you can do it for six months or something, then it will improve the situation and potentially allow you to promotional ability because, you know, the opening for the next supervisor is going to come on second shift or whatever the case may be. When you're working with clients, have them look beyond the immediate gratification to the greater goal. You know, yes, it, this change is uncomfortable right now. However, you know, once you get past this, you're going to be even further along towards your, towards your treatment. Promote co cooperation and harmony. Use persuasive appeals based on reason. Provide individual coaching and mentoring for followers as needed. Some people will need a little bit more micromanaging. Other people will get kind of irritated if you're micromanaging them. It's important to get a feel. I had one supervisee who was prior military, and I knew that 
his stuff was going to be done and it was going to be squared away all the time on time you know yet i didn't have to say boo to him except for to check in see how he was doing and you know all the touchy-feely stuff um but and i had a another employee whose paperwork you know if i had an audit coming up I knew her paperwork was going to be squared away. I had other employees, if we had an audit coming up, I knew I needed to go to their offices and go, you need to pull your charts and audit them for, to make sure everything's in there. You need to know your team. And it's important to allow freedom of choice for followers. You know, my employees could choose not to do what I said. You know, that was fine. There were consequences, but they could choose to do that clients can also choose and this is where it's really important to involve them in treatment planning to help them feel like they've got a dog in the race so to speak systems and processes that minimize conflict well these systems and processes foster intra and interprofessional collaboration so your therapists are going to talk among one another and then your therapists are going to reach out and talk to case managers and the doctor and the nurse or whoever's on your team Engage clients in treatment planning and develop a culture that supports minimization of conflict. And the mnemonic here is parsed. Practice accountability. Make sure that people have accountability for what they do, what they practice. If they are therapists, they need to have accountability for seeing their clients and doing their notes and yada yada. Everybody has to have their own accountability. You can't have a therapist expecting an intern to write their notes people need autonomy to be able to flourish and grow into the employee or person that they're going to be they need to have a little bit of ability they're adults we need to encourage reflection on ourselves how we're feeling on how we impact our environment and how our, our environment is impacting us so we're aware of stressors and potential sources of conflict so we can intervene early people need self-awareness empathy for others as well as for ourselves you know some days we're going to ha be having a bad day and we need to have empathy for ourselves and go all right you're not on your a-game you know take a breath and recognize this so you can address it and have empathy for others when they come in and they are looking distressed you know we tend to be better about having empathy for others decision authority needs to be related to the work environment and patient care people need to feel like they've got the ability to make some sort of decisions you know techs that are doing milieu monitoring need to be able to know what the bounds of their authority are and not just feel like well i'm here you know if they act out you know i'll call a staff member they need to feel like they've got the ability to set some limits and some guidelines Oops. we want to sustain effective staffing and workloads we've talked we talked about that a lot in the burnout prevention one so i'm not going to go into that we're going to ensure a climate of appreciation trust and respect for ourselves for our colleagues for our supervisors and our supervisees and our clients we need to appreciate everyone we need to make sure that we appreciate and respect you know the the staff person the um, person who's checking people in they get a lot of flack especially if you don't run on time so it's important to make sure that we are 
respecting them and appreciating what they do and acknowledging that, you know, I'm sorry I was running late. I know that put you in an awkward position or whatever. We need to value the potential of positive outcomes for conflict, recognizing that working through conflict can be really uncomfortable. However, it's probably going to strengthen the team and or I'm going to grow from it. We want to identify common situations that are likely to lead to conflict in your setting and establish a safe environment in which to express diverse opinions. We want to examine how our behavior impacts others and how others' behavior impacts us. I've said that enough today. And practice and collaborate with team members in a manner that fosters respect and trust and prevents violence. I've had staff members get into disagreements with one another and one staff member would slam their charts down and walk out of the room and slam the door behind them. That's violence. It's not direct violence, but it's indirect violence. That's not an appropriate response. We need to encourage dis discussion and open communication. Refrain from gossiping, bullying, harassment, or socially isolating others. Um, bullying, for example, could be a supervisor who, in the middle of a staff, staff meeting, calls out one of the employees and just throws them under the bus for something that they did or did not accomplish. That's not fair. Um, and it can put, make people feel very self-conscious, very underappreciated, and bullied. We want to fully adhere to organizational policies, procedures, and practices related to preventing, identifying, and responding to workplace violence. Well, first, your organization needs to have these policies and practices. And we need to follow organizational policies related to mandatory reporting. So what things, if you see in your clients or if you see in, in other staff members, what kind of things do you need to report and to whom? Usually it's to HR or to your direct supervisor. We also need to have processes related to seeking support and providing support to others when potentially violent situations are identified or occur. These typically fall under the rubric of sentinel events, if you will, in a healthcare setting. So there's generally a policy in place. But it's important for us not to sweep it under the rug and go, okay, well, that's just another day at the office, and really reflect on how it affected us and how it might affect our team. A, a lot of times what I've seen is if something bad occurs, especially with a client, um, there can be a lot of blaming between team members. Well, you should have. Well, you should have. Well, let's quit shaking our fingers and figure out what can be done to prevent it next time. Which comes down to ensuring open con communication and providing constructive support and feedback to people. That can be to colleagues, to clients, to supervisees. It needs to be constructive, not, well, you need to figure out a way to get your notes done. <laughs> It's sitting down and going, okay, what needs to happen so you can get your notes done and how can we make this happen? Because that's conflict. If I'm a supervisor and you're not getting your work done, then I'm going to have to come in and have a talk with you. And nobody likes it when their co supervisor comes in to have a talk because that's conflict. And that conflict can escalate. We want to set clear and objective goals for client care and just in general 
workplace behaviors. What are you supposed to do when you're here? Use a transparent decision-making process. Encourage active participation on the team, whether it's, you know, clients participating in their own treatment or the team participating to further the goals of the organization. And emphasize the notion that the work environment is created by each member of the team, from administrative staff to line staff, all the way up to the CEO. Everybody has a role in the creation of the workplace culture. Conflict management skills. Some of these are going to be, you know, no-brainers for you. Remain relaxed and calm. One of the, you don't want to escalate the situation. If the client is sitting down, stay sitting down. If the client is standing up, and you probably learn this in your verbal de-escalation classes, you don't necessarily want to stand up unless it's a safety thing. You want to remain relaxed and calm. Focus on the present, what's going on right now that has spurred this crisis. Identify the issues and the, quote, real problems, you know, Jim Bob's angry because you were 40 minutes late for your appointment. Okay. You know, that is a problem, but there's more to it because because you were late, he may feel disrespected, and we want to get to the underlying thoughts and issues. Pick your battles, though. You know, somebody may have a litany of done me wrongs that they're frustrated about. They've been working in an agency for 10 years, and they just... Don't have much nice to say. Let's pick your battles. Focus on the present. What can we do right now? What's one thing we can do right now to improve the situation? Remember that perceptions differ. Mine versus yours. We could go through the exact same thing. But our perceptions combine with our experiences and our priorities to create our point of view. And my experiences and priorities may be very different than yours. That doesn't mean yours are wrong. It just means we bring different stuff to the table. Allow the other person to express their concern. Always examine your part in it. And generally, I always tell, tell people, when you're pointing at other people, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. So what is your part in this conflict? Um, empathize with the other person for how they feel. And pay attention to your own emotions and your own nonverbals. It's easy to be talking the talk, but your body is closed off and going, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm listening. That's not listening. So you want to pay attention to your verbal and nonverbal communication as well as theirs. Because sometimes they may be talking and saying the right things, but you can see because, by the way they're pacing or by the way they're acting that they are escalating. Acknowledge and take part, um, take responsibility for your part in the situation. Use open, honest, and transparent communication. Handle conflict sooner rather than later. If you feel like an, a client is irritable with you for some reason, talk with them about it. If you feel like a staff member has a beef with you for some reason, let's talk about it and let's figure out how we can make it work because we're both working here. Let's figure out how we can create a workable solution. And seek a resolution through compromise. When there is conflict, there needs to be self-care. We need to take care of ourselves because conflict can be exhausting. So seek support from other people. You know, your supervisor is a good place to start. Um, other colleagues 
may be a good place to start. There's a fine line, though, on from whom you seek support and gossiping. So making sure that you've got confidentiality, anonymity, all that sort of stuff. You don't want to just start going to every other person on the team and going, let me tell you how Jane did me wrong. Uh, that's not going to contribute to a good ethical climate. But seeking support is important. Knowing people that you can get support from, obtain information about the situation, provide support to others that may be involved in the situation, listen, ask questions, and commit to resolving the conflict. Choose to listen and learn both to your own internal voice that's saying, okay, this is what I'm feeling right now, this is what I'm thinking, and the voice of your colleague or the client. What are they telling me that they're feeling? I may have intended something, and they took it in a way I didn't intend, and so I didn't communicate it clearly, and that's on me. My intention was good. My delivery was bad, so to speak. Explore your options to deal with conflict, and remember to separate problems from people. People can be awesome. They can be challenging to deal with, but people can be awesome. Um, just like instead of telling a child you're a good boy or you're a, a bad boy or a bad girl, you are a good girl, you made a bad choice. You are a good boy, but you made a bad choice. Explore the reasons for your own reactions when in conflict. Some of us, you know, I don't like conflict. And I know I don't like conflict. So exploring why I have issues with conflict was really important in me um, growing as a supervisor so I could actually participate in transformational leadership. And learn from difficult behaviors, both yours and other people's. That behavior communicated something. Signs of a potential threat that you need to be aware of. Abusive language or aggressive statements. Agitation, restlessness, or pacing. Anxiety. Auditory or visual hallucinations or cognitive impairment. Drug or alcohol intoxication, withdrawal, or a history of substance use disorders. Now, a lot of these, you're typically going to see more in clients than in staff, but you can see any of these in staff, and you want to be aware of them. A history of violence or positive attitudes towards violence. Mumbling. This is one of those that I have teenagers at home, so I'm used to it, but mumbling can be um, an indication that something's wrong because they're talking under their breath about, you just wait until I get even with you. They're not going to say it directly to you. They're, they're mumbling. And generally when people mumble, it's something that it's a very passive aggressive move. It's something they want to say, but they're not feeling like they can say it assertively. Prolonged or intense glaring or resistance to staff or supervisory directives can all be signs that someone is escalating in their conflict. When you're dealing with you know, if you're mediating a conflict between two employees and one employee starts to, to escalate and you ask them to sit back down or to stop yelling um, and they resist that, it could indicate that they are losing control and you may be losing control of the situation. High levels of stress or triggers for stress can be a potential threat if you know that somebody, you know, just got a divorce and is living in a hotel and lost custody of their kids, 
you know, they're under a whole lot of stinking stress right now, which may mean that they're more vulnerable to escalation. Lack of space or privacy, we already talked about. If you see somebody who has poor self-care and functioning, such as poor hygiene or a lack of orderliness, it could indicate that they are already kind of stressed to the brink. I had one employee that we actually had to talk to because, you know, he was coming to work and he hadn't showered for days and it was a problem. And we needed to do an intervention and talk to him about, okay, what's going on? You know, missing a shower one day is one thing, but, you know, it looks like something's going on with you. Poor social functioning and limited life skills could lead a person to re react more violently because they don't have the communication skills to assert their needs. Now you're thinking, well, clinicians, we're all trained in effective communication and life skills and stuff. Yes, theoretically we are. But that doesn't mean that everybody that works at your workplace is. And it doesn't mean that your clients are. So they may not be able to articulate their needs in an effective manner. And social isolation can also be signs of a potential threat. If they are withdrawing from other people, they may be feeling rejected and resentful. Client-specific signs, admission to a new or unfamiliar environment could trigger higher anxiety. Being in an isolation room, getting a quality of treatment or care that is what they de deem to be substandard. If they are exposed to the use of restraints or if they're homeless, any of these things can escalate or increase their stress levels so they are more at risk of becoming conflictual. And Stampeder, this is an acronym, um, mnemonic, sorry, from one of those best practices, and it just helps you remember things to look for in terms of you know, being aware of when someone might be on the verge of becoming aggressive. If they're staring at you, if they have an aggressive tone, if they are exhibiting anxiety or agitation, if they're mumbling, if they're pacing, if their emotions are dysphoric and anger, anxiety, grief, crisis, you know, if they are already vulnerable and feeling out of control. The disease process... And that can be you know, people who are intoxicated, they're going through withdrawal, they're in a psychotic episode, they've got cognitive impairment. Any of those things can contribute to less effective management of conflict. People who are non-assertive. You know, we think of people who are at risk of violent actions as being aggressive. It's not always true. Sometimes it's those non-assertive people that finally reach that place where it's the straw that broke the camel's back and they're tired of feeling like they got taken advantage of and they may become aggressive. I'll share a quick little story with you before we, well, uh, and resources. Uh, R stands for resources. If we want to make sure that clients aren't exposed to excessively long wait times or inappropriate communication, which could increase their irritability. But my little story real quick, uh, my grandmother, bless her little heart, she, sweetest little thing, she was about five foot nothing, and, you know, very adamant Catholic woman, never swore a day in her life, everything was just always just so, you know, she didn't have a harsh word for anybody, and my grandfather tended to be a bit cantankerous at times, and, you know, not violent, just kind of grumpy, 
And one day she had finally had enough. And he came into the kitchen and he was giving her an attitude about something. And she turned around and she looked at him and she flipped him the bird. And, you know, everybody, family was there and everybody's eyes got so big. And they were like, oh, oh my gosh, what is he going to do? And he just kind of froze because he didn't know how to take it. And she turned back around and continued doing what she was doing. About 30 seconds later, maybe not that long, she turned back around. And she said, you know what? Take a whole handful. It was like, oh, my gosh. She had been so non-assertive for so long, and she had finally had enough. And she's like, this is it. And for her, that was pretty aggressive communication. So we don't want to assume that just because somebody is super nice that everything is going well. When a situation occurs that is difficult, we want to help people de-escalate by assuming a calm, firm stance, speaking at a clear voice, but calmly and at a normal volume, acknowledging feelings and paraphrase what the person's saying, Please don't interrupt or try to problem solve until the person is calmed down. You know, let them feel validated. Let them know that you understand that they are in crisis. And then once they feel validated, a lot of times it's easier to move into um, problem solving and trying to seek a solution to the current situation. And finally, one more mnemonic, respect. Recognize the inherent worth of all of the people with whom you work, clients and staff. Eliminate derogatory words and phrases from your vocabulary. Speak with people, not at them or about them. If you've got an issue, talk to the person about it and talk with them. Practice empathy. Earn the respect of colleagues and coworkers through your behavior. Don't assume that you deserve respect. Earn respect. Consider your impact on others before speaking and acting, and treat everyone with dignity and courtesy. And that's one of those, this is one of those mnemonics I think we should have on a poster in the middle of the uh, lobby. So conflict is inevitable, and violence prevention involves creating an environment that supports open communication and respect, maintaining self-awareness of stressors and our impact on others, Maintaining awareness of others' reactions, behaviors, and stressors. You know, we don't want to live in our own little isolated bubble. Educating staff and clients regarding effective conflict resolution strategies. Everybody needs these skills. Minimizing triggers for conflict and being willing to learn from conflict. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.